0: Hello and welcome back to First Act, a podcast from Koshy's Business Builders. I'm Seth Busby.
1: And I'm Adam Bubb.
0: And if you've been listening to First Act, we hope you've been loving these insightful conversations with Australia's most influential business founders and ideas
1: people. If you're just joining us for the first time, this podcast is your all-access pass to fascinating founders and the secrets behind the veil of success. We're talking candid chats about what went wrong, what went right and how to build a business you believe in that lasts and makes an impact. It's powerful stuff. Seth, tell me about today's guest.
0: Now, Richard Kuypers is one of Australia's best-known entrepreneurs and the founder of one of the nation's largest removal companies. Chances are, if you've moved house, Richard's team at Two Men in a Truck have helped you do it. Richard started the business over 40 years ago with a big dream and a single truck and has grown it into a multi-million dollar operation that employs 300 people, has a fleet of close to 100 vehicles and turns over close to $20 million a year. It's a massive success story and one that he's shared with his family for the entire journey. Richard, thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. Richard, we are thrilled to have you on First Act today. Uh, we always start with what we call our First Act icebreaker. It's just a random icebreaker to, to get the conversation uh, flowing. So the first, uh, the icebreaker I have for you today is, look, I know that you have a pilot's license. You're a pilot. I want to know what is the best or worst flight you've ever had?
2: Well, I've had many bad flights, and as a miracle, I'm still alive. Unfortunately, due to bad eyesight, I uh, I couldn't get my pilot's license anymore. But definitely um, uh, losing my way up in the sky sometimes, that was pretty horrific and nerve-wracking. But I survived it all, so I'm lucky.
1: Well, we're glad that you're here with us. I am just imagining you there up in the skies, upside down, in all kinds of
2: (laughs) precarious uh, situations. It's a truly risky business.
0: (laughs) Now, let's get back to your journey. Um, You had a very different career path in mind when you first left school. You studied hotel management. So why did you decide to leave that behind?
2: Well, I came to Australia nearly 50 years ago, and in those days there weren't many hotels around the place, with the Menzies and a few others. So I never really got into the hotel business at all, and I started doing other things. And uh, it's been good.
1: So for those who are listening, I'm sure they picked up that you have an accent uh, and you were born in Holland and you came over here as a young man. What first brought you to Australia?
2: Well, I was young. I was 26 at the time when I came here. And it was more adventure, seeing the world. And Australia was really the place to go to in those days. So I was one of the first backers, backpackers to arrive in Australia. That was in 1973. And uh, I was only planning to stay here for a few months. But uh, 50 years later, I'm still here.
1: What had you seen about Australia that... Made it seem so tempting, you know, because I think I, I love Holland. I think Holland's fa- a fantastic country.
2: Yeah, Holland is fantastic. But anyway, I stayed here and I did a few things and started a few little businesses here and there. And then I met a girl, Cheryl, and we got married. So, I mean, before I knew it, we had children. So I had to stay here.
0: <laughs> what, they wouldn't take you back to Holland with the wife and kids?
2: Now, my father never sent me a ticket to come back home again, so uh, (laughs) that's why I'm still here. It's been a good choice, too.
0: I read that one of your early jobs here in Australia was in an opal mine. Can you tell me how that came about and what that experience
2: was like? Uh, I stayed in a hostel in those days, like a backpackers hostel, and um, I was told by one of the... uh, People lived there. To make one's fortune in Australia, one should go opal mining. So that's what I went. uh, We went up to Lightning Ridge, and uh, we got a claim on a piece of dirt. And, well, of course, it was a disaster. Never found anything. But also, (laughs) I heard a wise lesson. Never start an opal mine if you don't know what an opal looks like. (laughs) (laughs) So that was pretty much of a disaster and I came back to Sydney and,
0: yeah. Could you have been throwing out the precious gems with the dirt accidentally?
2: <laughs> yeah, most likely. <laughs> it's not as easy as it looks.
1: Oh, I bet. From there, I think it's safe to say that you found what would be, uh, you know, the jewel in the crown of your of your career with um two men and a truck. What inspired you? to found uh, two men in a truck. Uh, t- take us through those, like, the early days of those ideas.
2: Yes, I was doing uh, quite a few other things and I, I needed also a little truck. So I bought this beaten up little men's truck and I started doing uh, a few deliveries because the furniture shop up the road said, uh, do you mind helping me out doing a, a delivery here and there? So I said yes. And then he would say... Um, Richard, I need one man in the truck, if it's any small little thing. And if it was a big load, he would say, I need two men and a truck. So I never knew anything about removals at all in my entire life. It just happened by coincidence. And I started doing this. And uh, another good way is poverty. You know, when you're poverty-stricken, you have to make money. So that was making sort of a little bit of money in those days.
0: Because you had the wife and the kids to support by then?
2: Yeah, and a mortgage and all kinds of things. So that's why I was running around on the weekends and um, after hours, the living tables and bookcases and goodness knows what.
0: And so you initially operated the business from a caravan in the family backyard. I, what was that like?
2: <laughs> well, first of all, we worked from home. And then uh, my wife got fed up with all these people walking in. So I bought a caravan secondhand from somewhere and we put it in the backyard. And that became our office for quite a long time. <laughs> it's a good
1: good divider between uh, your, your home life and, and your work life. Nowadays, people are just, you know, working in their bedrooms <laughs> quite often. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, so we sat, we were in the caravan for about two years. And then the council was sort of, got, you know, Nike and said, we have to move. So we moved from the caravan and I went to the little shop in Camaray. And that became our office for quite a few years. And then I bought premises in St. Leonard's. And we're still there after all those years.
1: Wow. So one of the other things that I've read uh, about Two Men in a Truck I hear from a little birdie that in the early days of building the business, you had a bit of notoriety in the red light district of Sydney. Can you tell me about uh, this, that?
2: This right in the beginning when I arrived in, in Australia. Um, I didn't have any work. So uh, one of the inmates at the uh, Backpackers hostel said, come with me, I'll, I can get you a job. So, But the second day I arrived in Australia, I, I got a job at the Whiskey and Go-Go Club in King's Cross. I was the waiter, barman, the jack-of-all-trades there.
0: The things that you would have seen. Abe Saffron
2: doing deals. <laughs> oh, all these people sitting in the back there at the Whiskey and Go-Go. And it was the time of the Vietnam War. So there was a lot of uh, GI soldiers there. And a lot, a lot of... Uh, it was packed all this to the rafters with and cigarette smoke and Yeah, it was quite a place to go to, and it also had a stage there, and Johnny O'Keefe used to perform there. Shout, that's right. Sammy Davis was there, and Frank Sinatra was there one stage, and of course, um, we had all the gangland people from the across there, too.
1: So that was, that was a, just a, it was a different era, that that kind of thing. It was a different, different sort of thing. Yeah. But from the, at that point, were you doing, like, were you doing removal, removalist work then, or was that before that? No, that was before
2: that. that was before this that. is when I just arrived in Australia, it must be 1973,
1: 74. Right. So we're talking about the, the 70s, the, the that wild 70s period uh, in the cross. So,
0: you start in the caravan, you move to the little shop, then you've got your bigger premises. What, what have been some of the challenges in scaling the business from that f-
2: first uh,
0: idea to, to today?
2: Well, I didn't really have any plans at all. I just had one little truck and I used to do the removals myself in those days um, and I picked up our next-door neighbour's son. He was 15 at the time and we used to go and do the removals and then slowly, uh, we got busy, and then we got another truck on the go. And slowly, we sort of built it up to more trucks. And um, the, uh, we just kept on going. And today, we've got about 90 trucks on the road, I think. So It's a lot of people. Yeah. It's a national
0: brand now, like you're in Perth, you're in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane.
2: East coast of Australia. And we're all busy. So it's a lot of organisations, but I'm also terribly lucky. I've got the family in the business. So our daughters look after the operations now, which makes a big difference.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that family business element, because working with family can be a really joyful, wonderful experience, but it can also be challenging, butting heads with a family member. What's it been like for you?
2: extremely challenging and difficult. Working with the family is one of the hardest things you can do because they're all so different. You can't choose your family members. So, but uh, we had a lot of help to do it because working with the family, you have to have, we all have to come together and you have to talk to each other and have a plan what's the future of two men in a truck. Because I'm now 75, so I can't keep on going all the time. And we had a lot of arguments in the family, disagreements. And then we joined an organization called Family Business Australia, which deals solely with family businesses. And that gave me an idea on how we should uh, structure the, the, the company and become a family business company. And we started having meetings, and we got a mediator. You can't do these things without a mediator. And our mediator was accredited by Family Business Australia. So we started having meetings, and every meeting, everything was written down, and it became our charter of the family. And this uh, takes quite a few years, because in a family business, you have to talk about the family. And then it's in the business and the ownership of the business. We also have taken consideration the, the in-laws, like I've got three southern laws. And, of course, the most important person at all, my wife. What happens if something happens to me? How will my wife be provided for? So there's a lot of things going on that had to be sorted out.
1: Yeah, that is that is such a, an important thing to to talk about because I think a lot of family businesses have these these issues that pop up all the time that go, right, you know, there's there's a pressure from maybe one generation to another and then sometimes there's also there's that one person who has a very different view on how the business should be moving forward and then there's also looking out for other family members. Everyone has such different kind of takes on it, you know, like you can have a lot of different personalities. How do you kind of think... That do you, do you kind of recommend that approach with the mediator um, there to kind of get everyone's you know priorities and communication styles on the table and not on that same page?
2: Yeah, no. If you haven't got a mediator, then you then it won't work. You need an independent mediator who can who is experienced in family business management and he can direct uh, the family on how to do it. We go step by step. We started off with uh, talking to each other, what we want to do with the business. Do you want us to sell it or do you want us to close it down or do you want to take over the business? So we started giving clarity to the children on how on the future of Two Men and a Truck.
1: I mean, some of Australia's most successful businesses are family businesses. Uh, what do you think has made... Two men in a Truck, so successful, is it because you have your family, you know, as that support network, everyone really believes in it?
2: Oh, definitely. A family business has a lot of strength and has a lot of values because we all believe in the same values and we all have the same uh, uh, ideas of how the business should be run. But a lot of family businesses, there are 68% of companies in Australia are family owned and family managed but only a few percentage have got a family structure in place and a charter in place. Most family businesses find it too hard to do all this because the intrigue of the family and the feuding that goes on, so they just try to ignore it. And that, of course, has difficulties in the future. If I pass away, what's going to happen?
0: Family business is so fascinating I mean, because you um, look at family businesses and they say that the fortunes of a, a family business can be like one family builds the business up, starts the fortune, the next one spends it and the third generation loses it. Um, <laughs> hopefully that's not how it goes for you but there's like quite a lot of very, very famous Families like with fortunes, American ones in particular, where you know, oh, yeah, they haven't obviously done what you did and had that mediation and had the structure put in place and really planned for how um, the next generation was going to step in.
2: Now, I have no issue about the second generation because our daughters are very capable and. They will definitely keep the business going to way On the third generation, of course, I have no control at all. So we just hope for the best and see what happens.
1: Given that it's your daughter's running it now, has there been the temptation to change it to two women and a truck?
2: <laughs> well, if you look at my uh, tele- uh, my website, it's, it's, or oh, telephone, it's T. Two men, and you can also read it as T-women.
1: Tea T-women tea and a truck. Oh, should, yeah. should have thought of That's that. should have
2: thought of myself. <laughs> two men. People get mixed up with that. But now, the, the furniture removal business has to be done by uh, the men, mostly, and the office is run by the, by the women, and they do a fantastic job. We'll
1: be back with more from Richard Kuipers after this very short break.
0: Thanks again for joining us, Richard. Now, you have recently chronicled your experiences as the founder of Two Men in a Truck in a book called Inside the Box. Now, what made you decide it was time to put your whole journey down on paper for other entrepreneurs to learn from?
2: Well, I was hoping because I've been through the family business management for a a long, long time. And I don't believe people in business know the complexity of running a family business and what you have to do. Because if you don't do it properly now, later on, it'll end up in court and everybody will be fighting about the business. So I try to avoid anything with legal actions that can be taken uh, against us when I am not here anymore. So, it's just safeguarding the whole business. And it also gives my children a plan for the future of how we can operate harmoniously uh, as a family together. And that benefits everybody.
0: It's wise thinking. but <laughs> You don't want to end up like the Hancocks.
2: <laughs> no, that's another thing yeah, you try to avoid. And we uh, go to a lot of meetings with Member of Family Business Australia. We go to all the conferences. Daughter Catherine, who's the CEO, she goes to the second generation. Um, a, a thing at the at the family business Australia. We got to the second generation. And um, she done many courses, and she also knows how to manage a family business.
1: Yeah, you mentioned your daughter Catherine. She's now at the helm. Uh, what what's the best advice you could, you could give her, or that you have given her, uh, moving forward with uh, with the business?
2: Well, she knows exactly who I, uh, she knows exactly me. She's been uh, as the CEO for quite a few years now. And I've got my ideas. And of course, she has her ideas. But we also managed to uh, compromise what I, you know, she does what she thinks is right. And I advise her and the family will advise her too. So it works out well. It has its moments, but on the whole, it's all going smoothly. Mm.
0: And so, with you stepping down as CEO and Catherine taking over, you've taken on a new role as a brand ambassador.
2: They had to sort of give me a title and do something, <laughs> so it's maybe the brand ambassador. And the brand ambassador tells the story of how two men and a truck got started, and all the ups and downs you had, the dramas, the family business. We had plenty of dramas, I can assure you, and how it all kept on going. So I. I go to a lot of meetings. I go to uh, social events. I do public speaking sometimes.
0: So what were some of those dramas then? You mentioned the family dramas.
2: Well, the family, but well, the business dramas, of course, when I started, I had nothing in place. I wasn't aware of what I was doing. I had no business experience. You Everything were just a young guy the...
0: from Holland
2: <laughs> yeah. trying to make a buck. Uh, no, I, i never heard about taxation or accounting, nothing like that. So, and it all had to be streamlined. The bigger the company becomes, then, of course, the more regulations, more uh, uh, protocols, HR that had all to be put in place. So we'd been busy doing that for quite a long time, getting our company up up there with the big ones with all the regulations in place. And that was our biggest challenge.
1: What about personality clashes? Because that's often a thing. That can feel very personal when it's in family because these are the people that you know. You know that you know them the best. They're the people you love the most, you have the strongest feelings for, and yet you can also have the strongest feelings the other way and be like, I absolutely hate, 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 hate <laughs> how you did that um, or that decision you made was so far off the mark or that was impulsive, like... Was there ever, has there ever been a situation where you've just gone, you've shaken your head afterwards and gone, oh, I, I didn't choose this person as my family?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes that happens, but we also get very difficult customers too. So, it's, uh, but then we've got a very good, um, uh, what's the word, culture in our, our family and in, at work. Everybody treats us like, a bit like a family member. I've never had really anybody in the office leaving us. They all stayed with us. We all look after the family. And the, our employees have been there for 20 years sometimes. So it's a long time. And I think it's, we have a good culture. We have a good social responsibility attitude. We have. We look after, during the floods, we delivered goods to uh, to the water victims. So we do a lot. And... I think that sort of makes the people in the office sort of feel that they're part of something more than just a removal company.
0: Hmm. Yeah, you've just touched on that slightly Um Two Men in a Truck has a corporate social responsibility program. It's called Moving Together. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, what it does, and why social responsibility has become a big part of a big part of Two Men in a Truck's everyday ethos? Well,
2: it is because I think if you have a family company, our duty is to leave the planet in a better state for the next generation. So we can do this with social responsibility. We've got trucks, and we can help charities out with delivery furniture. We do the refuge centers, uh, the daffodil, and they, when the floods were on, we did the flood victims, and and the cancer thing for, for bicycles. And we do more things like that. We sponsor kids' soccer teams and my grandchildren' uh, school events. So we do a lot, and also we on board of the Anne Frank Exhibition, which is a traveling exhibition around Australia. Being Dutch, of course, Anne Frank is important to us, and we do the transport and, well, part of the transport, not all of the transport, and take it from one place to the other. So social responsibility, I think, encourages the people in the office to realize we're more than just a removal company.
1: In 2020, you participated in Vinnie's CEO Sleepout, and you've said that that experience has changed your perspective. Can you tell us how it impacted you?
2: I've done the CEO of Sleepout for Sir for about six years now. This is the first year I haven't done it. It does impact you being on the street. It also impacted a country like Australia that's so rich and wealthy that people have to sleep outside on the street. Um, especially with uh, uh, women, with babies and children. I've seen them sleep on the street, and it's just amazing that this can happen in Sydney. So it has a big uh, impact on me, and we also sponsor the Refuge Centre. And We do uh, a delivery once a week. We provide a truck, and we sort of do our best. But it is sad, and... But doing the CEO sleepover is a, a pretty rough charity to be part of spending the night on the streets.
1: Yeah, I mean I guess you've kind of, you've had you you can also relate from having like, you know, you, you came here with, with basically you know very little when you came to Australia. You can kinda of look back to where you are from that to now and go, you know what? Like I have this opportunity to be able to give back and you've got a company that provides a service that can actually really help people. You know, you're transporting goods, you're transporting food, you're you're really helping people out. So that is a real um I just think it for anybody who does run a business, it's always important to look at that and go, can how can I contribute to the, you know, the social fabric. Um, you know, like you said, you're but we're talking about your corporate social responsibility programme. Like what can I contribute?
0: Especially Australia. We're such a wealthy nation and yet we have these cases of extreme poverty, and so many corporations really don't give a damn. So it is not admirable, but kind of admirable in a way that you have decided that you won't turn a blind eye to that.
2: No, you have to do this because we see an awful lot. Because in our business, we do an awful lot of moving, and we can see a lot of domestic violence, we see um, divorces, split ups. Uh, People, you know, angry that they have to move. So, it is a very hard, um, sometimes it's very hard to move people and make people happy that they have to, you know, go into the new place. But often it is uh, very sad. Mm.
1: But I suppose also the the role of a removalist—you are closing off somebody's ch- a chapter in someone's life. You know, there's a there's a there is a positive to take from it. You know. Uh, that this could be the, the beginning of something new.
2: Oh, yes, but also we do, a lot of people, we move from, uh, that is, they're moving to a nursing home or to a retirement village. They don't particularly want to move, but they have to move. Mm. So it's difficult sometimes.
0: It must be fascinating uh, because you do, it is like you do see chapters of people's lives, like opening and closings of doors in a way.
2: Yes, no, we do that all the time and we also have a lot of people who have been in the same house for many, many years and they've got the house full of furniture and, you know, bits and pieces and they've got nowhere to take it to because they have to move into a smaller place and then, of course, they don't know what to do with it all.
1: Gosh, it can be such an emotional process.
0: Yeah, a lot of heartbreak. Do you have counselling for your removalists? <laughs>
2: Oh, yes, yeah, so we have that um, for sure. Uh, our daughter, especially our youngest daughter, Elizabeth, is very good talking to people and she can sort of uh, make, uh, make them at ease. But in the office, we also have a counselling service. If somebody feels that they need uh, counselling, we've got a counselling company they can uh, refer to.
1: That's good to know. That's such an important part of, um, I guess, like that corporate social responsibility, not just doing good for people out there, but also for the people who work for you, who, who are part of the two-men-in-a-truck family?
2: Oh, definitely, because there's we had about 300 people. So that's a lot of people, and there's a lot of people these days with, uh, uh, they believe they've got mental issues. After the, uh, the COVID, we had a lot of issues. You know, nobody knew exactly what was going to happen. We had to have all these regulations in place, going from place to place, it was hard for them too
1: well one of the challenges that you've you know, personally faced uh in 2014 you developed a condition known as posterior cortical atrophy pca that impairs your vision how did that diagnosis make you reevaluate reevaluate sorry uh, your life and and where you're going
2: that's been uh, one of the hardest things i have because i'm, I'm sort of legally blind now And a lot of things I used to do, like flying planes, driving cars, reading, watching television, all these things have become sort of nearly impossible. So I can't read a newspaper or uh, do anything. But anyway, life uh, you have to carry on with life, and this is how it is. You can't do much about it. I can't do anything on the computer.
0: Yeah, it's... uh, uh... It's funny because all the things you mentioned, apart from obviously flying, which is probably out of a lot of our leagues, but um, the other things are very simple pleasures which we all take for granted, you know, reading, watching TV, and suddenly you don't have the enjoyment of that anymore. Have you taken up any new hobbies or are you doing any different things now because of your diagnosis?
2: So I suppose I am. I, I go walking in the morning for a short walk. Uh, and I've been writing books, of course. I've written two books. And that was also hard because with the computer, you have to use big letters. So was a bit of a circus. <laughs> anyway, life goes on and you make the most of it.
0: It's a very good attitude to have, Richard. Life does go on. So... To wrap up, what do you think is the biggest lesson that you think you've learned about yourself from these 40-odd years of being in business with two men in a truck?
2: You're always be optimistic. You're never pessimistic. You, ha- you must have a good attitude, a good culture, and you have to have pers- perseverance. And you have to keep on going forward. You can never go backwards. And what happened in the past, you just have to forget and... Uh, pull a line in, in the sand and keep on going and that's what we have done we had a lot of ups and downs in the beginning but we always kept on going
1: Yeah, you've got to keep those wheels on the road
2: and you don't dwell on things too long it, otherwise it uh, takes too much time mm. you just keep on rock and rolling
1: keep on rock and rolling I I think we can those are words that we can all live by uh Richard Kuypers, we are we're actually I'm I'm just we feel privileged to have you on this podcast thank you so much for sharing your first
2: act and thank you for inviting me
1: it has been great so uh, for anybody who'd like to know more about two men and a truck head to twomen.com.au or twomen.com.au, which uh, is a handy way to remember the website, uh, to find out more about Richard and his great family business. And please join us again next week for another fantastic First Act conversation. Thank you.